Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. We took a short break from our news review episodes during August, but today we're back with a really packed episode. I'm joined by GP Online's deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to look at some of the key news stories affecting general practice. Coming up on the podcast today, we're talking about a last minute U-turn on COVID and flu jabs. We're looking at some more controversial plans from the Labour Party about how they intend to change general practice if they win the next general election. We're also discussing how international medical graduates are becoming critical to the GP workforce in some of the most deprived and underdoctored parts of England. And looking at whether doctors feel measures set out in the NHS workforce plan will help address the current shortage of GPs. And we're talking about the GMC's overhaul of its good medical practice guidance. Our good news story today is about GP training. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, as we record this, there's been some breaking news and practices have been told that vaccination for flu and COVID will now go ahead from early September, a U-turn on plans they announced only a few weeks ago for jabs to happen in October this year. So Nick, why has the government made that change and will GPs be getting any extra support to deliver the vaccinations? The government announced this week that COVID and flu vaccination programmes would start from the 11th of September. And that's not unusually early compared with previous years. But the announcement came only about three weeks after the government had said jabs wouldn't start until October this year. The reason for the about face on this is that the UK Health Security Agency has advised the government that jabs should start sooner to protect vulnerable patients from a new COVID variant, BA286. And this variant isn't officially a variant of concern at this stage, but it has a significant number of mutations that seem to have made it highly transmissible. And so that's what's triggered the decision to bring forward the vaccination campaign. GPs have been angry about the decision to reduce the fee for COVID vaccinations by 25% to just £7.54 for this autumn. GP leaders had warned that many practices may have to pull out of the vaccination campaign this autumn because they won't be able to afford to deliver jabs at that price. But with the accelerated rollout, NHS England has offered an extra £10 per jab delivered to patients in care homes for older people between the 11th of September and the 22nd of October, and an extra £5 per jab delivered to other eligible patients between 18th of September and the 31st of October. So many GP practices were already planning to start flu campaigns in September. They're at least prepared to deliver those vaccines. But adding in COVID jabs at the last minute will still be a major challenge. And for others that weren't planning to start any jabs at this stage, it's going to be a greater challenge still. And the BMA is calling for the windows when practices can claim those supplement payments, the £5 and £10, to be extended to make sure that more practices can afford to take part in delivering jabs this year. Obviously, that story's just happened as we've started recording this episode of the podcast. So we'll be looking at some more of the implications over that in the coming days. So do keep an eye on GP Online. So moving on, on Monday, Labour's Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary, Wes Streeting, outlined some further ideas about what could happen in general practice under a Labour government in a piece he wrote for the Telegraph newspaper. So Nick, what ideas was Wes Streeting putting forward this week? At the Labour Party conference last September, Wes Streeting said a Labour government would give patients a right to see the same doctor each appointment and to choose how they saw their GP. So whether the appointment was face-to-face or via another method such as a telephone appointment. 
in the Telegraph this week, Mr. Streeting effectively reiterated those points, but he went a step further by linking them for the first time to funding. So this is an early look at how Labour might try to achieve those two goals of more continuity and choice of appointment type. Mr. Streeting said that practices would be incentivised financially for continuity of care and for allowing patients that choice of how their appointment is delivered. But, and this seems like quite a big but, Labour is reportedly planning for this change to be cost neutral. Um, And what that means is that the additional funding practices that do well on offering continuity and choice of appointments receive will come from reductions in funding for other practices that are judged not to be delivering so well on those fronts. So if this is the route Labour chooses to go down, it will create winners and losers in general practice. And it doesn't seem to be about levelling up. And there are real questions about the impact that would have and about the types of practices that are most likely to be negatively affected. GPs obviously think that continuity is a good idea. And, and the RCGP has in the past called for continuity to be incentivised, possibly instead of the tick box targets we see in the quaff. But I don't think anyone would back the idea of practices that struggle to provide continuity losing out in any way. What do GPs actually have to say about all of this? The chair of the BMA GP Committee for England, Dr. Katie Bramall-Stainer, said that it would only be possible to deliver these sorts of offers of greater choice for patients if the existing GP workforce was retained and thousands more GPs were recruited to replace doctors lost to the profession over recent years. She pointed out that the general practice workforce in England has shrunk by about 2,200 GPs since 2015, and, and that's come at a time when demand is rocketing. We've reported a lot on the fact that the shortage of GPs across England isn't distributed evenly, though. So some areas are much more underdoctored than others. And in areas where practices are struggling to recruit, financial penalties for struggling to offer continuity or choice of appointment types surely risks destabilising and undermining practices that need support and perhaps exacerbating already significant inequality by moving money from those practices to others that are not struggling as much as they are. And I think another thing this highlights is the the real difficulties general practice faces with shifting political priorities and public statements from politicians. In July this year, the current government rejected a string of proposals put forward by MPs around continuity of care. It said continuity was important for many patients, but rejected the idea of measuring continuity of care at practice level or appointing PCN continuity leads or working towards bringing back a personal list model in general practice. And last year, the government said it wanted to prioritise speed of access over appointment type, and it would not be prescriptive about how patients see their GP as long as it was within two weeks or possibly faster than that. But here's potentially the next government saying that they will be prescriptive about how patients see their GP and that continuity is not only important, but is going to be linked to funding. And so that means that, you know, unlike the current administration, they surely will want to measure it. I mean, it might be that they choose to measure it through only the the, the patient survey, which is a way that currently measures it up to a point. But how reliable that measure is, is another thing. And I think GPs would have a lot to say about whether, you know, the idea of linking funding to the results of the patient survey. Labour has said also that it'll expand medical training places, but it hasn't spelled out how this will translate into the increase in GP numbers that the profession needs. And obviously, the current government has failed to deliver on promises to grow the GP workforce. And in the absence of action on the workforce, as the GP committee chair said, 
promises around access and continuity are pie in the sky, but they still create public expectation and they potentially drive more of the anger general practice faces from the public and without the tools to, to solve the problem. Actually, that leads on to one of the other things we really wanted to talk about today, because we've done a few stories over the past couple of weeks relating specifically to the GP workforce. And as you say, those ideas that Labour are putting forward, they really are probably contingent on us having more GPs available to deliver that kind of level of care. So we're going to come on to look at wider workforce numbers in a minute. But Nick, you wrote a really interesting story looking at data around where GPs in England obtain their initial medical qualification. So this is which country they qualified as a doctor in and then how that related to where they ended up working as a GP or training to be a GP in England. What exactly did you find about that? Well, the figures we looked at show is the extent to which general practice in England is reliant on international medical graduate or IMG doctors, doctors whose primary medical qualification was obtained outside the UK. IMG doctors have supported and sustained general practice and the wider NHS for many years, but particularly in the context of an NHS workforce plan that promised to increase the domestic supply of doctors and suggested that reliance on overseas recruitment is a risk to the long-term future of the health service. It's, It's interesting to look at what the status quo is. Across England as a whole, reliance on overseas doctors in general practices has increased over the past five years. So in in June 2018, 21.8% of the GP workforce had obtained their primary medical qualification outside the UK. Today, the figure is slightly higher at 22.8%. And the the current figures show that nearly a quarter of GP partners and more than one in five salaried GPs now are international medical graduate GPs. Among GP trainees, the increase has been much, much steeper. So nationally, nearly half, it's 46%, I think, of, of all GP trainees are IMG doctors now, more than double the proportion five years ago. But in parts of England, reliance on overseas doctors is far, far greater. In eight integrated care board areas, that's eight out of 42 nationally, international medical graduate doctors make up more than a third of the full-time equivalent GP workforce. And mid and South Essex ICB, IMG doctors account for half of the GP workforce as the highest proportion in the country. And when it comes to trainees, IMG doctors account for up to 80% of trainees in some areas. And what we found is that there's a really strong correlation between areas that are deprived and or underdoctored and the proportion of IMG doctors in the fully qualified workforce and among the trainee workforce. So across the 12 ICB areas with the highest proportions of IMG GPs, 10 are also in the top 12 underdoctored areas. And there's a similar correlation between underdoctored and deprived areas and the proportions of GP trainees who are IMG doctors. So these overseas doctors not only make up a huge proportion of the current GP workforce, particularly in areas where general practice faces the most acute workforce shortages, but also an enormous part of the potential future workforce. In the context of strike action by doctors, rising workload, a shrinking GP workforce, alarm bells should be ringing for the government in NHS England about the need to incentivise all doctors to remain in the workforce. But, But these figures particularly highlight how important it is to make the NHS competitive internationally, both in terms of pay and working conditions, so that GPs coming through the system are incentivised to remain in the UK and in the NHS. 
one GP I spoke to said that he felt the workforce plan was a real missed opportunity to recognise and value the contribution overseas doctors have made and will continue to make to the NHS. And he said that if overseas doctors hadn't come to the UK and shown the willingness that they have shown to work in under-doctored and deprived areas, the NHS would have collapsed a long time ago. It's a good point, that, isn't it? It's obviously also important to mention, I suppose, as part of this, that it's not just general practice that's reliant on overseas doctors coming to work here. It's the NHS as a whole, the government and NHS England's long-term workforce plan, which which you mentioned there, that highlighted that 25% of the NHS workforce currently comes from overseas. And part of that plan's aim is to cut that figure to 10% in 15 years' time. It's probably worth mentioning here some of the latest overall GP workforce figures for England that were published this month, and they've shown another year-on-year fall. I mean, overall, it means there's now 2,187 fewer GPs than there were. That's full-time equivalent, fully qualified GPs than there were in September 2015, the point you know where comparable records began. So that's a 7.4% decline in the workforce. And, you know, there are shockingly 5,210 fewer full-time equivalent GP partners since 2015, which is a massive 24.4% fall. So none of that is very good news. And also, as I mentioned before, very hard to see how any political party can deliver on promises around improving access or continuity or any of that without some sort of turnaround in the number of GPs we have available. So, Emma, we've mentioned the um, NHS England workforce plan, and you wrote a story recently about what GPs think of the plan that was based on a survey we carried out. What, what did the survey find? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, quite a lot of scepticism about it. Only 6%, a very tiny number of GPs who responded to the poll, said that measures in the NHS workforce plan would help to boost the GP workforce. I mean, 80% said it was either fairly or very unlikely that the plan would reverse the decline in GP numbers. And the remaining 14% said it was neither likely nor unlikely to help. So we asked GPs about some of the specific measures in the plan and quite there were some quite interesting responses to that. So most GPs uh, really back plans to expand GP training places by 50% by 2031. The vast majority also really support plans to offer all foundation doctors a four-month placement in general practice. I mean, the idea behind that is that it would increase exposure to general practice before doctors make a final decision about a specialty, which might potentially mean more of them could choose general practice. But from some of the survey responses, GPs also thought it was just a good idea because it would give new doctors a better understanding of the pressures in primary care and how general practice works just before they eventually maybe went on to specialise in hospitals, which which could only probably be a good thing. But then on a more negative note, most GPs disagreed with the idea that registrars should spend the full three years of their training in general practice. I think a lot of people see the value of GPs spending some of their training in hospitals, you know, providing those placements are relevant. GPs were also very split on on the idea of expanding the use of staff in additional roles, which was is quite a big plank of the workforce plan. About the same number, 41% were in favour of the move, 42% against it. Yeah, the rest were unsure. But I suppose the big thing that kind of came across is some real concerns about the workload implication of some of these measures. Almost half of GPs thought they would increase workload in general practice over the next decade, really. And the vast majority of GPs said that general practice just doesn't have the capacity to train and support these additional doctors and other staff that the plan 
intends to recruit or the space in existing buildings to accommodate them all. So obviously expanding the number of GP trainers and dealing with the primary care estate is going to be really key to actually delivering on these plans. And to be fair, NHS England has acknowledged that, but there just is no plan to do anything about it at the minute. Partly, I think, because there's no agreement about funding more generally past the next financial year. One gap in all of this is, I guess, we didn't ask specifically about retention in the survey, but the reason we didn't ask about that is because the plan has very little itself in it on retention. But the GPs responding to the poll did mention retention a lot. There were a lot of comments about that lack of focus on retention in the workforce plan and about the need to make sure the current workforce remains in place rather than just getting all these new people in. There's a general feeling, I think, and I think that's just widely across the profession as a whole, not just about the workforce plan, you know, that working conditions for GPs really needs to improve if NHS England has any hope of turning things around and reversing the fall in GP numbers. And, you know, measures around retention are not just important for more experienced doctors. They're also really important for new GPs and, and all these international medical graduates that you were mentioning. NHS England and the government can increase the number of trainees all they want, but these people might not stay GPs for very long or may not stay GPs in this country for very long without steps to address some of the problems around workload, burnout, stress, and let's be honest, pay, which is driving people out of the profession. You mentioned pay there. We know that pay is obviously a major issue across the medical profession at the minute. Um, junior doctors and consultants are striking in England and there's set to be a ballot of all hospital doctors in Wales and specialty and associate specialist doctors in England also look like they're heading towards industrial action. Did GPs responding to the survey have anything to say about pay? Yes, they did. When we didn't ask specifically about pay in the context of the workforce plan questions, because obviously that's not in the workforce plan, but pay you know, came up time and time again in the comments from respondents. There's quite a lot of anger really there about the level of work GPs are now expected to shoulder with effectively no additional pay or no recognition of the work they're doing, particularly from GP partners and GP trainers. Lots of the comments from GP partners were saying they didn't feel valued because their pay has fallen significantly in recent years. There was a general feeling really that addressing pay for GPs at all stages of their career is really important for overall retention. We did ask a separate question about the 6% pay rise that the government awarded to practice staff for this year. The government has said this pay rise is going to be fully funded, but as of yet, we've got no details on how that's going to work, You know how practices are going to receive the money, how the government is going to, and NHS England are going to work out how much each practice gets. We're kind of expecting a few more details on that in the coming weeks. But even though practices are expected to get funding to cover that increase, GPs don't think that 6% is enough to retain salaried GPs or practice staff. Almost two thirds of GPs said it was not sufficient. Lots of partners responding to that poll said that they were really struggling to retain staff, particularly admin staff, because of higher wages offered by other local employers for what many said was less stressful work. And one thing that came through really clearly to that question is that rising costs in general practice because of inflation, and this is excluding the wage bill, is really hitting practices hard. 97% of GP partners said that their practice would struggle financially during this financial year as a result of rising costs over and above staff salaries. Lots of GP partners reporting they've experienced significant falls in their personal income. And, you know, we talked earlier about that huge fall in the number of partners we've seen since 2015. Clearly, you know, a big reason behind that 
is workload, but obviously pay is also going to have an impact. You know, you can't expect people to take on more and more responsibility and pressure and then not be prepared to value that contribution appropriately. I mean, it is increasingly hard to see how this government or any incoming Labour government, if that's what we get next year, can really address the workforce challenges across the NHS without properly addressing pay. Moving on, in August, the GMC unveiled an update to its Good Medical Practice Guidance. Good Medical Practice sets out the standards and values expected of all UK doctors. And these are some of the key standards against which doctors will be judged if they are referred to the GMC. This is the first update of Good Medical Practice for a decade. Um, Emma, you, you wrote about this for GP Online. Um, what, are the, what are some of the key changes in the, in the guidance? Well, it's quite a lot. It's, it's quite a hefty overhaul, although many of the standards in there will be, you know, really familiar to doctors and have only been slightly modified. There's also a lot more specific reference in there to other bits of GMC guidance that doctors will be familiar with. That wasn't kind of explicit in good medical practice before, and it, and it will be. So the GMC, for its part, says that five key areas in particular have been updated. So these are the things the GMC says it's specifically targeted, and these are around creating a respectful, fair and compassionate workplace for colleagues and patients, promoting patient-centred care, tackling discrimination, championing fair and inclusive leadership and supporting continuity of care and safe delegation. So it's those areas where you're going to see the biggest sort of changes in good medical practice when you start looking at it. So tackling toxic workplace behaviour has really become front and centre in this guidance in a way it just hasn't been in the past. Doctors are going to be expected to have a zero tolerance approach to sexual harassment and to act on any bullying, harassment and discrimination that they witness. You know, if the first time sexual harassment of colleagues has actually been addressed specifically in the guidance, basically, doctors are now told they should not act in a sexual way towards colleagues, which causes offence, embarrassment, humiliation or distress. And that includes verbal or written comments, displaying or sharing images and physical contact. So it's really explicit about what constitutes sexual harassment as well. There's a very vague current requirement to treat colleagues fairly and with respect. And that's been quite expanded. And doctors are now told they should behave in a way that creates a culture that's respectful, fair, supportive and compassionate and be more aware of how their behaviour affects others. So that's quite a big change. And we know that there are plenty of doctors out there who have experienced racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia in their place of works, in some cases from colleagues. Over the last few years, the BMA has produced a number of reports on all of these issues involving really large surveys of the medical profession. And you really only have to look at those reports to see that these things are still a problem in medicine. And for its part, the GMC says it hopes that by tackling them in good medical practice head on, as it were, it'll start a conversation about how we can start making meaningful change within medicine. So that is a positive, although there are some potential challenges with all of it, which we'll come on to in a second. And then there's some other big changes which have been widely talked about on social media. There's a new requirement for doctors to be kind to patients. GPs I've spoken to have not thought that's necessarily too controversial but you know, this is the guidance which patients will see doctors need to follow. And, and there is a concern from some quarters that because kindness is very subjective, it could potentially lead to more complaints about doctors. But it's hard to tell how that's going to play out. There's a new section on sustainability. So that's quite interesting, which says doctors should choose sustainable solutions where they're able to if they don't compromise care. 
And there's more specific guidance than in previous versions on things like continuity of care, delegation. There's also mentions about remote consultation. So that's all a big change. One of the other changes that's caused a bit of concern is the whole section on how the GMC will use the standards in fitness to practice processes. That's really changed as well. So previously, there was a statement that said only serious or persistent failures to follow GMC guidance that posed a risk to safety or trust in the profession would put doctors' registration at risk. And that's been removed now. So the guidance now says the GMC will assess if a doctor poses any risk to patient safety or public confidence or maintaining standards. There's been a bit of concern about the removal of that statement, although the guidance does specify that workplace conditions will be taken into account as well as how serious a concern is. So lots of changes. It's probably worth mentioning that the update to the guidance has been under consultation since April. And what's interesting about that is there's been quite a lot of changes since the draft version of the guidance in April. The final version is quite different from what the GMC put out in April, which suggests, you know, they have listened to feedback from that consultation. For example, that specific reference to sexual harassment of colleagues, that wasn't in the draft version that was consulted on in April. There was also a list of 12 overarching commitments that doctors were going to have to sign up to in the draft version. And that's obviously got binned somewhere along the line. And also the whole bit about how the GMC will use good medical practice in fitness to practice procedures. That's also changed a lot following the consultation. That section in the draft version was very, very limited and it didn't have any mention of taking into account context or how serious the concern was. So that's obviously been amended following consultation as well. When do all these changes come into effect? They start from the 30th of January next year. The GMC has said that doctors should use the next five months to familiarise themselves with this guidance before it becomes applicable, as it were. Are there any potential problems with all of this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of concerns around some bits of this, as I kind of alluded to earlier. I mean, the Medical Defence Organisation, the MDU, they released some survey findings when the guidance came out. And these were based on the draft guidance. But that survey found that only 15% of doctors were confident that the standards could be delivered in their work environment. And half said they would struggle to fully absorb the new standards before they were introduced next year. Obviously, we're about to head into winter. We've already talked about flu and COVID. Everyone's worried about what the next few months are going to look like. Potentially some really big issues around workload for doctors ahead. And as the MDU said, the last thing doctors need at this time of the year is, is extra homework to do. The BMA, for its part, you know, they did welcome a lot of the changes in the guidance, particularly the bits around tackling sexual harassment and discrimination. But there are some problems with that, as the BMA pointed out. It's all well and good saying that doctors should act if they witness discrimination or bullying. But a lot of that is completely dependent on whether or not workplaces have the structures in place for doctors to highlight and report concerns or worries And, you know, if those concerns are not treated seriously or acted on, which many people may have already experienced in the past, it makes it very difficult to doctors to trust those sort of processes. So obviously, there needs to be work on that front from employers' side. Otherwise, it just potentially puts much too much onus on doctors themselves. And the BMA also raised some very real concerns that the update doesn't really reflect the NHS in which doctors are working. Professor Phil Bamfield said, the BMA chair said that doctors are working in a system that's chronically under-resourced, huge backlog of care. And, you know, there is potential for doctors to fail to reach these standards through no fault of their own. 
he said it was really important that the GMC didn't underestimate the impact that systemic pressures have on doctors' ability to provide safe care. And he also pointed out there's a real worry that doctors could be scapegoated when services failed to provide that level of care patients need. And these are those standards that will potentially be used to do that. So there is some worries around that. And I also think it's important to look at this in the context of a profession that's really lost confidence in the GMC. I mean, remember, we talked on the podcast a little while ago about the BMA voting no confidence in the GMC at its um, annual representatives meeting. The reasons behind that are many, which we've talked about before, including some really questionable cases the GMC has pursued against doctors, actually how those fitness to practice processes work. A recent polling by the Medical Protection Society found two in five GPs who were investigated by the GMC had suicidal thoughts. The fact the GMC can and still does overrule decisions by the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service. And then there's this really persistent problem around racial inequality and fitness to practice processes, you know, which means that black and minority ethnic doctors are much more likely to face referral and investigation than their white counterparts. So all of these things mean that many doctors have little faith in the, the GMC and its processes. So in that context, there are clearly going to be concerns about how these new standards are applied and used going forwards. Before we go, we've just got time for our regular good news slot. And we've been talking about the workforce a lot today, and this is related to that. Figures from the end of July show that all but a handful of around 4,000 GP training places that begin UK-wide from February 2024 had been filled a month before applications closed. Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have filled all of their posts and just a handful of posts remain to be filled in England. So despite all the things that we've been talking about today, it's really clear that doctors are choosing general practice as a specialty in greater numbers than they have ever done before. And that is a really positive story and a really strong basis to build on for the NHS workforce plan which I think also highlights why it's so disappointing that retention didn't feature more widely in that plan, because that is clearly where the greater challenge lies in tackling the falling number of GPs. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm back next week when I'm speaking to GPs involved with the Trailblazer Deprivation Fellowship in the East of England, which is a scheme that's aimed at newly qualified GPs working in deprived areas to help give them the skills to thrive and make a difference in the practice and communities where they work. So please join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access other resources on our website at gponline.com. <laughs>